the Space Show podcast will be on its annual summer hiatus for six weeks. In its place, we are pleased to present our summer series, Lunar Science in the Artemis Era. Lunar Science focuses on the science to be done on and around the Moon by both robotic missions and the crewed Artemis missions. Lunar Science Welcome to Lunar Science, the series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. Episode 42 is our second about the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which has been circling the Moon since 2009. Although most people have seen the wonderfully detailed images of the Moon taken by LRO, not many people take any notice of Harlan Spencer's studies of cosmic rays. Harlan is Professor of Physics and Astronomy at the University of New Hampshire, he uses the data from an instrument called CRATER, an acronym for Cosmic Ray Telescope for the Effects of Radiation. Cosmic rays are mainly protons and other atomic nuclei traveling through space at nearly the speed of light. One affiliation today that I really highlight is that I'm principal investigator of a, an instrument on a lunar reconnaissance orbiter called CRATER that will form a lot of the insights that I'm going to share today. So in terms of a, a presentation overview, I'd like to uh, start by giving a brief summary of what we have learned at the Moon from the Crater instrument over a full solar cycle. And this is really kind of astounding. We heard earlier about limited information we have at the Moon uh, based on sh relatively short Apollo periods. We've now had over 12 years of continuous operations at the Moon. Uh, so I'll focus on the uh, radiation environment and with exploration implications. There really are uh, implications of what the deep space radiation uh, throws at it. And we've heard about them. It's both galactic cosmic rays and solar energetic particles at lower energies. There's solar wind effects that lead to uh, surface uh, charging and surface modification. But it's really those higher energy uh, products that lead to ionizing radiation that have impacts for uh, crude exploration. And um, it's not just the primary uh, source of radiation that impinges more or less unimpeded directly on the moon, but the secondary radiation that's caused by interactions with matter. Cosmic Ray Telescope for the Effects of Radiation, a tortured acronym that gives us the cute title Crater, which unfortunately is also a common searched item when you go to the moon, so maybe not the best choice for a cosmic ray telescope name. 
is part of the payload of, of LRO and uh, was launched in, along with LRO in June 2009. The telescope is the part of the instrument that's aligned in the nadir zenith direction, and that defines our telescope axis. The instrument is very quite deliberately designed to a measure of the linear energy transfer of galactic cosmic rays and solar protons near the moon and uh, thus be able to characterize the ionizing radiation and its effects. Effects of the instrument. Configuration of the telescope. It's not one you can look through, but it's one that energetic particles, owing to their very high energy, can uh, zip right through. It's about the thickness of a human torso, and embedded in that are two uh, chunks of tissue-equivalent plastic that are sandwiched by um, detector pairs that measure uh, at each location in the stack, uh, linear energy transfer in two different kinds of detectors, one, ones that are thin and ones that are thick, that allow us to uh, sample a very large range of heat. We have a super high data rate thanks to LRO's capabilities, which for uh, an instrument of this kind is really unprecedented in, in prior types of operation in space, and it's allowed us to do um, things that we never had uh, really uh, imagined. When, uh, when we were conceiving the experiment. And what we've discovered uh, is as the solar cycle has unfolded, we went through a sunspot cycle, the numbers went up and then came back down. Uh, it was a historically small cycle in many ways. The spectrum, if, if the movie had been running, uh, uh, has evolved over time uh, going to uh, lower values. As the uh, uh, solar cycle uh, goes up, and then to uh, again to higher values at present and actually higher now than it was during the beginning of the last uh, solar cycle. What we've been uh, doing with these uh, primary data of galactic cosmic rays is converting that into dose and dose equivalent. I'm going to focus here on dose in uh, silicon because that's what we actually measure with the instrument after passing through uh, TEP. And what this is showing is just a uh, an accounting for the total absorbed dose in silicon, which uh, annually is about 0.14 gray or 0.037 centigrade per day of uh, protons, which uh, dominate the dose, uh, followed closely by GCR heavy ions, alphas, the doubly charged helium next, and then about 10% of the radiation near the moon is albedo. So secondaries uh, created in the surface and kicked back uh, of which a component is neutrons that we've heard about. You know. uh, the idea is you've got nowhere to run and no time to hide because at solar minimum, the galactic cosmic rays are the highest and they're very tough to shield against. Um, and solar protons are rare, but at solar maximum, you get uh, a decrease by maybe a factor of two or so in the galactic cosmic rays, but now you're facing an onslaught of these very large explosive solar events that accelerate protons to extraordinarily high energies with these uh, very brief but intense uh, transient phenomena that are the spikes you see in the, in the top panel there. I'm going to now move to implications of this environment for human exploration by looking at permissible mission duration, by looking at permissible exposure limits, thinking of it like a bank and you have exposure credits that depend on your sex and age. Uh, every flight then exposes a withdrawal from that, and the uh, PMD then is the duration of a single mission that essentially zeroes that balance, and you really have no overdraft protection. 
So what Voter did was to use um, the crater observations during the current solar cycle, and the last solar cycle, and used models in the pre-LRO era to estimate the time-dependent exposure at some deep space location as a function of sex, age, and shielding using uh, never smokers and NASA's quality factors and tissue weighting factors. And so we can look um, to, uh, to our past to look forward. So what do things look like uh, as we move forward? And we can start interrogating and looking at our current recent solar cycles with what we've experienced in the past. And so we have some models that are predictive of what we might expect to see in the future based on the kinds of measurements we see at the sun and in the interplanetary medium. So let me summarize. With LRO over the course of the last solar cycle, we really had an amazing ride to uh, quantify ionizing radiation, both in terms of its intrinsic science value, those are the truths, and exploration applications, those are the consequences. I focused on Crater, but the LEND instrument, uh, looking at neutrons uh, together, have characterized much about spatial and temporal variability of not only the primary, but also the secondary radiation in lunar orbit, going to GCR and solar protons, obviously, implications for space biology. Harlan Spence. Another of the unheralded instruments on the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter is DIVINA. This is a thermal radiometer. A secondary crater is one made by the impact of debris thrown out of another crater, which might even be thousands of kilometres away. Rebecca Gent is on the DIVINA science team. This talk is very short um, to try to summarize all of the many, many contributions that, that Diviner has made to our understanding of the regolith. Um, it's been orbiting on LRO for more than 10 years and providing extremely high quality um, observations. And we have um, just tons and tons of very um, rich data. It's a very rich data set. Um, and the observations that Diviner has made have been instrumental in providing new insights into almost every aspect of our understanding of the regolith, including composition, physical properties, and how it evolves. So I'm going to focus on one very specific um, aspect of that myriad of results, which is the link between specifically the nighttime temperatures and the evolution of the regolith. Uh, so nearly 10 years ago, Josh Banfield um, created a very insightful uh, data product using diviner nighttime temperatures, um, exploiting the fact that the nighttime um, radiances that are, are emitted from the surface of the moon are basically almost completely influenced by the physical properties of the materials radiating. So at nighttime, you remove the influence of albedo and the, the changes in the solar incidence and um, what you're left with is a radiance that comes um, from the materials depending on how much um, thermal energy they retain during the night. And this sets up a very profound difference between the effective temperatures or the brightness temperatures that we observe from indurated materials like rocks and um, finer, less indurated materials like regolith. And so Josh, um, in 2011, 
broke the um, physical components observable by Diviner down into a simple binary mixture of fine materials representing regolith and indurated materials representing rocks, and was able to um, calculate two extremely important and useful um, data products, one of which is the rock abundance, um, which is, um, I'm sure most of you have seen this data set before, but it, each um, pixel is given a value which represents the fractional coverage, the aerial fractional coverage of that pixel by rocks or materials that radiate all the way through the night as though they were rocks. And um, removing the influence of those rocks, he also calculated the temperature of the um, other fraction, which is the regolith temperature. So we notice a couple of important things. You can see some obvious examples of variations across the moon in each of these um, indices. So, you know, clearly large, young um, crater ejecta show many, many rocks. And so you can see those elevated rock abundances associated here with um, Aristarchus and Copernicus and Tycho. And you can very also, also very clearly see the Maria, um, which show lots of small rocks because of the fact that the regolith is much thinner in the Maria than in the highlands. Um, and those things have been studied and many important and surprising um, implications have, have emerged um, from studying those things. On the other hand, when those rocks are removed and we look at the regolith temperature the, to first order, um, the regolith is relatively uniform. And so um, that's in itself an interesting result because we can see that down to the, to the um, thermal skin depth, the diurnal thermal skin depth, or round numbers about a meter across the moon, there isn't much variation from place to place in the regolith um, temperature. So of course, the variations from that general rule of thumb are um, where we make advances. Regolith temperature has been further analyzed to produce something that we call the H parameter. So um, on the Diviner team, we have a, a, a thermal model, a one-dimensional thermal model that helps us predict um, both the surface temperatures across the moon, which we can then mat match to the Diviner observations, and also the temperature profile with depth. And the, the most appropriate um, model for the structure of the regolith that goes into that model is a density um, of the regolith that varies in an exponential way. And the H parameter gives the scale of that exponential variation. And so the result here is this map that you could, which shows, um, it, it is a very rich um, source of information about the physical properties of the regolith. So I'll talk about one very um, interesting and unique implication or application of this information. So Josh um, and some other people on the Diviner team looking at the regolith temperature map, very quickly discovered um, a whole bunch of these very, very cold spots, which are associated with very small young craters that have extremely outsized thermal signatures. So craters on the order of 10 to, you know, a couple of tens of meters produce hundreds to thousands of meters of thermal influence. Pierre Williams and some other people have um, further investigated these features and found that they represent a very important time marker in the, the evolution of the lunar surface. So they found you know, several thousand of these cold spots shown in the upper left from a paper by Pierre Williams in 2018. 
And the, the conclusion here is that they represent a ubiquitous and very transient phenomenon. So they fade on the order of 100,000 to 1 million years. So the important upshot here is that cold spots are regolith evolution happening in real time that we can watch um, right now. Um, and just as a as a um, a precursor to what Emerson Spirer, I'm sure we'll discuss in a few talks. Um, cold spots are not the only real time phenomenon that are that um, that is occurring on the surface of the moon, but I think all these things are related, and that's an active area of research. Um, so what some other people, such as Emily Costello, has done with these data is to revive um, some old Apollo era modeling by Don Galt to study the process of regolith overturn. And these, these new observations from Diviner, these cold spots and, and other observations have provided really important constraints on these models. And the upshot of all of these models is that secondary craters are a major, the major driver of regolith overturn. You can't match the observation of the um, fading rates of cold spots or rays or, or any number of other constraints without accounting for secondary cratering. Um, I'll just say that the, um, this is just a, a very small sampling of what the diviner thermal observations, specifically from nighttime temperatures, um, have done, which has provided a new way to investigate this fundamental question, which is what are the details of the processes by which impacts create and continually shape the lunar regolith? So it's a canonical fact that we all accept that impacts create and evolve the regolith, and the, um, the details of that process are surprisingly obscure. Um, and so I will just leave us with um, uh, this point that I'm advocating here, which is that we need to keep watching the active lunar surface. Um, so in, in terms of future directions for exploration, I think this is one of the most important things we can do is keep monitoring these current processes. Um, and that's all, thanks. Rebecca Ghent, a member of the Diviner Instrument Science team. Having been in orbit since 2009, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter might be considered geriatric. In November of 2021, Noah Petro outlined the future prospects of LRO. You know, part of keeping a spacecraft healthy is, you know, having a team that monitors everything that goes on on the spacecraft. Our systems engineers uh, monitor our battery, our fuel, uh, our solar array, so that we don't only operate today, but we operate tomorrow and for the, the distant future. So that for all of the missions that we plan and want to have going to the moon, we have LRO as an asset there to scout out these landing sites and collect the data that we feel we need to make these missions possible. Okay, let's talk a bit about the future. Let me just state that basically we have used effectively 98% of our fuel. We're in this fuel efficient orbit and going forward for the next several years, it looks like that LRO will be in a roughly 100 kilometer circular orbit. We have about 13.7 kilograms of fuel left. It looks like fuel is our one uh, rate limiting factor for life. We need fuel to uh, unload momentum. We need fuel to phase our orbit, put our orbit in the proper configuration so we minimize the time in darkness during eclipses. And of course, if we had to tweak our orbit to say observe a landing, if we had to do that, we, we would use fuel. That is the remaining resource. The low, nat I'm sorry, our natural orbit drift to this 100 kilometer circular orbit means that we don't have to use fuel to trim or, or maintain our orbit, that we can just essentially let Sir Isaac Newton drive us. Part of that driving also means that we are drifting 
away from the poles. Right now, um, our orbital inclination takes us about 85 and a half degrees uh, latitude. So we're about just under five degrees away from the South Pole when we slowly are drifting away from the South Pole. Now, again, we've been at the moon for over a decade and we have collected an amazing amount of data for the South Pole. So it's not like we're missing anything. But for the landed missions that want to target South Polar landing sites, we either have to rely on the data that we have collected or off-nadar observations of, of polar targets. Um, as a reminder, we are in preparation for our next extended science mission proposal, which will take us from September of next year. It's hard to believe that next year is already 2022, uh, through September of 2025. And as a reminder, we have about five and a half years of fuel left in the tank, which would take us through April of 2027. You know, one of the great outcomes from today will be a set of potential targets for LRO. And so we'll harvest the, the locations that are discussed as, as inputs into our, our targeting scheme for ESM-4, which we're in right now, and into ESM-5. It should be noted, of course, you know, some things have changed on the spacecraft. So, for instance, for Mini-RF, we no longer can use the Arecibo um, Observatory to, to, to illuminate the moon. Uh, but we have other ground-based assets that we can use with our uh, Mini-RF for Earth-facing uh, radar observations. And again, uh, NADAR observations for LRO are limited to 85 degrees and um, equatorial. Uh, and I would remind everybody that we have a special new position on the project science side. Maria Banks, who's, who's part of this meeting here today, is our project science liaison for, for future missions. She's been working with some of the upcoming CLIPS providers to help them find uh, the existing data, put in requests for, for future data collections from our instruments. And so, you know, teams should feel free to contact Maria uh, with, with special requests. But certainly once a mission comes, a fully-fledged uh, mission, we, we begin in earnest the discussions with those teams to begin targeting and, and, and collection of, of data. As a reminder, though, uh, the sooner the better. You know, the moon is a wonderful place to operate, but we only have limited opportunities, for instance, to collect stereo observations of a particular target on the surface. We only have certain opportunities to um, image a site at, you know, early morning or late afternoon lighting conditions or collect photometric observations. And so the sooner we can get these observations into our plan, the better. Again, I look at that five and a half years of, of fuel left on LRO and say, we're on the clock. So the sooner the better that we can begin planning and, and implementing these observations for your targets. One of the things I want to mitigate expectations of is that we'll be able to observe every landing. Observing a landing or a, a, la or a landing attempt, hopefully no more litho breaking events, is challenging. We have to put the spacecraft in a very specific position, which means using fuel. Again, fuel is our one limited resource. And so unless we have months of planning, uh, knowing that a specific mission will launch several months later, landing on the moon, it's really not going to be feasible for us to be at the right place unless we're fortunate. So for instance, Chang'e 5. Chang'e 5 landed. LROC was able to acquire an image after landing, but prior to the sample return canister launching from the surface. And of course, several months later, we were able to observe the landing site after that launch occurred. That was fortunate. We were lucky. We cannot count on that for every future landed mission. But what we can count on is, again, proper planning. Um, we are excited to support future landed missions, not just for identifying sites, but if we are able to make coincident observations during the spacecraft operations period of time, I think there's an opportunity for, for synergy between those observations. You know, we the, the LRO team can generate specific products for teams and, and then shared with the, the universe through the PDS, uh, but this needs to be discussed ahead of time and planned. And I, I would remind folks that one of the, the great uh, new products that's coming down the line are these 
improved five meter per pixel DEMs that are coming from the Lola team, Mike Barker and Ernest Rico are generating these products and they're available at the website at the right. Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter Science team member Noah Petro bringing to a close the second of two episodes about this venerated spacecraft.